I was once called a banana. Do you know what that means? It's a term often used to describe someone who is Asian on the outside, but white on the inside. I guess that works for me. I was adopted from China when I was a baby and have lived in Arizona ever since. I don't have an accent and dress like a typical American. All my memories have been in the States. I feel like a true American, not an immigrant. I started to realize that people saw me differently than how I saw myself when I was in grade school. I started to hear comments like, what Asian isn't good at math? These comments made me feel like I needed to be this picture-perfect Asian, super smart, top of my class, perfectly well-behaved. This pressure comes from the model minority myth that the Asian community is a representation of the perfect minority. I remember when model minority first came out, first reaction was, oh, that's a compliment. You know, we're, we're pretty good. This is Dr. Mackey, president and CEO of the Go For Broke National Education Center. Until we really began to deconstruct it and really begin to examine how it was being used and why it was being created, it was a way of pitting minorities against one another. These are the good minorities, the successful minorities. These are the not so successful minorities, not the models you know, type of thing. And when many of us began to understand how it was being used to build walls rather than build bridges, when we began to understand that the term model minority is a stereotype, and any stereotype, whether it is quote-unquote positive or negative, dehumanizes people because it fits people into a cookie cutter existence rather than understanding that every individual in every community is distinct with its own history and its own dynamics. Civilian Exclusion Order 69, signed by Lieutenant General DeWitt, resulted in the relocation of Japanese Americans to the internment camps. This occurred about three months after President Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066. This is a photo, an iconic photo of the uh, 442nd. Uh, this, is, this photo was taken when after a battle called the Rescue of the Lost Battalion where they lost about two-thirds of their men. And as the story goes, the general told the colonel, line up your men in, in full parade uniform. And when he went out there, he only saw about one-third of them, and he got very upset, saying, now, when I tell you to bring the whole regiment out here, they all should show up. And the colonel would say, this is all I have left. You know, because uh, as you may have heard, they were the most decorated unit of their size in American military history. But the reason for that is because they were awarded so many Purple Hearts, and that's the medal that you receive when you're wounded or killed. This is a, an actual jacket that one of the uh, men wore. And if you look at it, look how small it is, right? And, and that mannequin is actually a child's large mannequin. At first we got an adult small mannequin and it was too big, you know, and because these guys were small and, and their average height was 5'4", weighed about 120, 125 pounds, and they're trudging along with you know, nearly 100 pounds of equipment on their backs a lot of times. This is such a universal story. It's a story of the sons of immigrants who stood up for our nation and, and demonstrated that being an American is not about the color of your skin, it's about the content of your character. 
I noticed that this, like on both of these, uh, uses the word incarceration camp. Right. Now, let me just say, because you may have picked it up already, I don't use certain words. I use uh, very specific words. I don't say evacuated. I say we were forcibly excluded. I don't say that we were interned. I say we were incarcerated. I don't say internment camp. I say concentration camp. And these are words that I specifically choose. Uh, to give you one good example of the euphemisms that were created at that time, when, when the notices were put up, if you look closely, it said all individuals of Japanese ancestry, both aliens and non-aliens, right? So you know this, right? And so what's a non-alien? A citizen. A citizen. Yeah. But the government even understood that they couldn't say all U.S. citizens of Japanese ancestry are going to have everything taken away from them. So they created this euphemism of non-alien. In the same way that evacuated, I believe, is a euphemism. Because evacuated talks of, is usually used for taking people out of harm's way, and it's usually voluntary, right? This was not voluntary, this is force. And do you have any idea why I don't use the word intern or internment? Internment in times of war is when you imprison an enemy alien. So for us to say that we were interned implies that we weren't American citizens because we weren't enemy aliens, right? So it's important, I think, for us to use words very carefully, very thoughtfully, and in fact, that kind of addresses, begins to address your issue of what does it mean to be a model minority? Why is that not a good thing? When you start to deconstruct the meaning of words in the way that they're intended. I, I choose, try to choose my words carefully, and there are times when I may use different words in different settings, is out of respect for other communities. You know, and I know the word concentration camp can be inflammatory and, and hurtful, for uh, Jewish Americans. So I think it's very important that all of us think very carefully about the words that we choose to use to describe our own experiences and the experiences of others because it will have effect in how we see each other, how, how we experience one another. Uh, I think and I believe very strongly that every community has the right and really the responsibility of defining its own experience you know, and not letting others define it for them. And, and we saw a lot of that in the 60s, especially with the ethnic studies movement, as young people began to question their own experiences and the experiences of their community and saying, wait a second, what we're reading in the history books, what we're being fed by the media, what we're being told by popular culture, it's not how we experienced it. It's not how we see it. And so, um, you know, there was really a movement to self-define and to choose the words that define who you are. Do you think the Japanese concentration camps and how Japanese Americans were treated kind of contribute to um, kind of how they acted when they're like, oh, go to school, go to college, be a doctor, like spurred them on to pursue the kind of model minority idea? Without a doubt, without a doubt, but it may be in a different way than you're thinking. And let's go back, it's 1945, the camps are closing, Japanese Americans are given $25 and a one-way train ticket to reestablish their lives. You know, we didn't, for the most part, come out of camp saying, oh, we're demanding an apology, we're demanding redress payments. 
it was the day-to-day -day concerns that were top of the mind for most Japanese Americans. Let's put a roof over our heads. Let's put food on the table. Let's send our kids back to school. Let's rebuild our communities. It's the things that most of us would think about after being in prison for three to five years. But there's another predominant feeling that the Japanese American community had, and that was a feeling of shame, a feeling that somehow we had done something to contribute to bringing this egregious violation of the Constitution upon us. And it, it's the classic example of identification with the aggressor. We blamed ourselves. If only I had said this, if only I had done that, if only, if only, if only. And that's how Japanese Americans felt. And, and the feeling was, let's be 110% American so that this would never happen to us again. And that's why people my age and maybe a little bit older, we don't speak Japanese because our, our parents did not want us speaking Japanese. They wanted us speaking the King's English. They wanted us going to school, getting good jobs, being 110% American so that this would never happen again. People think, you know, that Asian people are well off or educated, but that's not true of the whole population. You know, and, we, and there's still a lot of fighting to be done for other Asians. I mean, especially with all this Asian hate going on. This is Carolyn Sugiyama Clausen. She was the legislative aide to Hawaiian Senator Dan Inouye in the 1980s. I saw injustice when I was in college. We were almost evicted by a landlady once in Honolulu, three girls and I, you know, college students. And I got really mad. And I wasn't the one that was gonna just go, oh, well, let's go find another apartment. So I was that kind of fighter already, I think. So I went to the Better Business Bureau, you know, whatever I had to do, we fought her and we could stay. We just had to negotiate something with her. And then some of my friends were happy and we all got to stay. So then I knew, oh boy, there's power in the legal system and complaining and fighting back. And I think that's one of the things that led me to law school. I started working um, January 1979 just as this redress issue was being discussed by JACL. Okay, as a sansei, meaning I was third generation Japanese American, as a sansei attorney, Dan Inouye put me in charge of civil rights for him in his um, office. And so at that time, the Japanese American Citizens League wanted monetary reparation already. But Senator Inouye said no, that the National Commission was the way to go. There were only five Japanese American Congress people at that time. It was Dan Inouye, Sparky Matsunaga, who was the junior US Senator, and only Norm Mineta and Bob Matsui on the, in the House. They were the congressmen from California. Bob Matsui, well, both of them had been in the camps. As young, as young people. There was also a Republican U.S. Senator, S.I. Hayakawa, who was not in support. So that's part of the why the Senator said that we had to create a national commission. So then it became my job to do it. So I drafted the bill. I called it the Wartime Relocation and Internment of Civilians Act because I wanted it neutral 
on its face so that nobody would recognize that this was legislation to study about the World War II Japanese Americans. You notice we didn't even put Japanese Americans in the title. So the bill was introduced. It became a Senate bill, 1647. And then we're on our way. I think most of you know there were 10 large camps. They called them the WRA, War Relocation Authority Camps. Two were here in Arizona. One is up the road at Gila River near exit 175 on the I-10. And the other is in, was in Poston, uh, north of Lake Havasu. The executive order was neutral on its face, meaning it was supposed to apply to everybody, but it was only applied to Japanese Americans, not German or Italian Americans, which was why we were able to convince people in Congress that this was wrong, that it was discriminatorily promoted and executed. People lost their lives and liberty without due process of law, meaning there were no hearings and there were no charges brought against any individuals, which is basic due process as guaranteed by our US Constitution. So that's why it was wrong. The picture of Jimmy Carter um, signing, he sent, Senator Inouye sent this to me because I was not there at the time in DC. So that's the, the thank you from the Senator for all the work I did. That's an amazing picture. Yeah, it is. I even have the pen. I didn't bring the pen. Wow. It's back in Hawaii. They give you the pen that the president signed his name on the legislation. Wow. And the legislation is here. You know, this is the public law that it becomes. See, it was the 96th Congress, but it must have been the 317th legislation that was passed, I guess, is how they do it. And it says July 31st, 1980. So the picture says, for Carolyn Sugiyama, this was your day. Your is underlined. With much affection and gratitude, aloha, Daniel K. Inouye. He knew that I was responsible for getting that bill through. I think he saw the fire in my eyes. <laughs> I asked her if it was difficult to get the redress legislation passed. 1980, we created the commission. They went out and did their public hearings for two years, wrote that report, which is right there. You can see how thick it is. So it took them a long time. And honestly, I didn't know if it was going to happen because I left D.C. And then, of course, it took six more years until President Reagan signed that Civil Liberties Act. Of course, that whole work, that two-year episode, trying to create the National Commission, you know, it was something, it was the right thing to do, you know? I mean, it was a wrong, honestly, that happened against our people. And the more I learned about it, I thought, oh my goodness, you know, we just have to, we have to do this. We have to fight back. And, and I said, as I said in today's presentation, there was a lot of pushback, you know, I remember the people who were discouraging me and saying, oh yeah, why should we co-sponsor this bill? And it was so frustrating. But you know, when you're in on the ground like that, you know that you just have to keep going. You can't quit. You know, of course I wanted to quit. I mean, I thought, oh, let's just give up. But you can't, you know, when the backs of all these people are on you. 
I was a college student when the commission came to Los Angeles. And I'll remember the testimony of one man named Kiyoshi Sonoda. And Kiyoshi Sonoda was a dentist. And he testified that because he had some medical training, he was put in charge of the infirmary at his camp. And he talked about his first patient. It was a dehydrated young baby. And he said, under normal circumstances, he could have treated that infant and made him well. But because he didn't have the right supplies, he didn't have the right equipment, all he could do was hold the infant in his hands and feel his last twitch before he died. Congressman Matsui told us he lost his hearing because he didn't get adequate health care. I mean, it broke my heart. You know, he was a baby. It broke my heart, you hear stuff like that. That's the kind of stuff that fuels you to keep going, no matter what. And in 1988, we were able to obtain a unprecedented apology in monetary redress payments. It's about the strength of our nation to be able to look back and say, we apologize for something that we did wrong. So in that light, it's not only a great Japanese-American story, it's a great American story. I gave this talk at the Desert Art Museum in 2017, also a day of remembrance. And right after that, one of the descendants walked up and he said, Carolyn, our family got 60,000 and I didn't know who to thank for. He said, I'm thanking you. I just, I mean, I was just like crying. And he said that his grandfather was a broken man after the camp experience at Gila River is what he said. The grandfather never recovered. He couldn't go back to work. You know, you, these are innocent people like my father, you know? My father, he was a first year dental student at USC. And because of the executive order and Pearl Harbor, well, Pearl Harbor and the executive order, he gets expelled from USC. I only found out recently that it was 120 of them. He told me there were nine dental students who were expelled along with him. So the University of Southern California contacted us to tell us that they were going to award these honorary bachelor's degrees. He died when he was 81, 1996. So he never knew this was coming, of course not. So it was kind of bittersweet. It's a reconciliation of what happened to my father. It's nice that it happened in the 80th anniversary of the signing of the executive order. 1942 to 2022, we can lay this to rest. After COVID started, I was in class and these two guys sat down at my table. They started talking to each other about the virus and I coughed. I wasn't sick, I just needed to cough, you know? But after that, they scooted away from me and started whispering to each other while throwing quick glances at me. They didn't even talk to me for the rest of class. The next week, they came in, fully made eye contact with me, and then sat at the farthest table away from me. I also wanted to ask how things have changed since the COVID-19 pandemic started. Things got tremendously worse after the pandemic started because, of, you know, people blaming it as the Chinese virus. Because Arizona is the state that had two of the camps, it's kind of an important state for this issue. In the redress movement, 
in the 80s, there was a commission hearing that uh, heard testimony from individuals. And at the end, they submitted their findings and they found that the camps were wrong and that the camps were the result of race prejudice, war hysteria, and a failure of political leadership. As I toured the nation and as I lectured to high school kids and to college students and so forth, I asked them, when does that sound like? And invariably I get the answer, it sounds like right now. And, and we need to see how we can do better as a nation. There was a Supreme Court justice named Antonin Scalia. And Antonin Scalia was actually a very conservative Supreme Court justice. But before he passed away, he talked about the Japanese American experience. And he said, what happened to the Japanese Americans was wrong. But you are kidding yourself if you think it will never happen again. In times of war, the laws fall silent. Those are very chilling words for anyone who believes in the Constitution and who believes in our value as being a nation under the law. And so the challenge, I think, for your generation and for uh, young people of all backgrounds is that we need to commit ourselves that never again in our nation will we allow our laws to fall silent. And that's a big challenge. You know, and what we're seeing over recent events is that that commitment is being challenged. You know, are our laws being silenced in different ways? Are people acting as if they are above the laws or that the laws don't pertain to them? And that's what I think we need to be vigilant about. It's still a dark day, but it's, it's gradually turning around and then it's coincidental that my father is getting this honorary degree. So for us now, finally, it's kind of like coming to a closure. And that's good, because we need closure. When I get home to Hawaii, I'll take it to my father's grave and tell him, Uncle, see Daddy? <laughs> 80 years later after the signing, and you had to flee California, here it is. Dr. Mackey and Carolyn shared their advice from my generation. Learn from the past. You're hearing it firsthand from us who were there. Because we're going to pass on. Everybody's passed on. I mean, the senator died in, what, December 2012. And, and he would just laugh now were he to know that. And, you know, working closely with somebody like that, you just, it's so close to power that you don't forget it. Um, it's made me who I am and who I believe other people can still be too as we, you know, continue our battles. At Gopher Broke National Education Center, we oftentimes say, Okage-sama de, which means, because of them, we are. We enjoy the benefits today of freedom, equality, to the extent that it exists, and the, the, the privileges that we have as Americans because of what the generations before us experienced and went through. And what I remind our young folks is, yeah, keep up the good fight, but understand at the same time that I would much rather be Japanese American in 2022 than Japanese American in 1942. 
you know. It is better today than it was 80 years ago. Is it perfect? No. Are we backsliding at times? Yes. Is there work to be done? Yes. But let's not lose sight of the broader picture, which is that we as a nation are moving towards becoming a more perfect union. The next generation, your generation, it's your turn. You know, uh, my generation, we're about done. You know, we've, we've fought the fight that we could fight and we, we carried the torch as best we can. And we're looking to your generation of all backgrounds, you know, to move us forward and to, to make us that more perfect union. This episode was produced by Kat Buxter, supported by Arizona State University's Havarger Institute Research Building Investment Grant. Music is composed by Aiko Fukushima and sound mix by Reina Higashitani. This is Chasing Cherry Blossoms, reframing American history through the Japanese experience. <laughs>